This is a financial promotion. If you decide to invest, please remember that investment involves risk. Investments can go up and down in value, so you can get back less than what you put in. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance and may not be repeated. Please note that Global Solutions is an offshore fund only available in the Channel Islands and Isle of Man. It is not available to UK investors. Welcome to the latest edition of Ravenscroft podcast series. Uh, my name is Sean McDade. I work on the discretionary desk in, uh, in the Guernsey office. And I'm here with three of the lead managers of our multi-manager funds to talk about some of the notable features of the last 12 months in markets. Specifically, I have uh, David LeCornu, who runs our balanced fund, uh, Bob Tannehill, who runs our income and higher income funds, and last but definitely not least, Shannon Lancaster, who runs the Global Solutions Fund. David, we'll start with you. One would be forgiven for thinking that there were only seven stocks in the equity markets this year, uh, the Magnificent Seven. Why has they attracted so much attention? It's performance, Sean. Performance, performance, performance. The Magnificent Seven have had a stellar year, and this has caused uh, difficulties for active investment managers and value managers alike, as they will be significantly underweight these businesses compared to their weight in the global equity markets. For those who do not know, the seven are Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA and Tesla. They're a select group of high quality companies. At the time of this recording, four of these companies have a combined market capitalization in excess of $8 trillion. And the smallest of the seven has a market capitalization in excess of three quarters of a trillion dollars. Now, those are really, really big numbers. I, I struggle to get my head around them. Um, but to help you get your head around the numbers, they account for about 20% of the value of all of the companies listed on the MSCI World Equity Index. That's over 1,500 businesses. If you like to look at it from a different angle, it's also roughly the same as the combined annual gross domestic product of Japan and Germany together. This matters as when the share price of the seven rise or fall more than the market, they've an outsized impact on performance. And this year, the seven have risen between 40% and 200%. So the way to think about this is that if you look at the performance of the MSCI World Index and the MSCI World Equal Weighted Index, it negates the impact of the size of these businesses. So in sterling terms, over the 11 months to 30th of November, the MSCI Global Equity Index was up 13.5%. Whereas if you look at the Equal Weighted Index, they only rose 5%. Now, What's behind these incredible rises in the Magnificent Seven is a question that you'd probably ask. We've seen a combination of strong business performance and excitement around the AI narrative send the share prices of the Seven soaring. The effect of momentum investors who have no valuation discipline and simply buy what's recently risen and sell what's recently fallen expecting trends to continue has exaggerated these share price movements. The same is true of passive investors 
who simply buy the index and don't differentiate between the investment merits of one business and another. And I think, David, that the passive point's a really interesting one because you've hit this strange world now, haven't you, where the these stocks have become such large components of the index that actually for, for a number of managers, the regulations no longer allow them to hold them in the size the index has them in, especially true if you're, say, a technology manager, for example, and you follow one of the tech indexes. So you're in this... There's, but, of course, there's an exception for ETFs who are allowed to hold more concentrated positions in order to track their indices. So you've actually got this world now where, there are, for some active managers, they're not allowed to have market weights in these stocks, meaning that even if they love them and want to hold them, they still can't keep up with the passive indices. So I think we're in a, we're in a slightly strange world. And, of course, as we all know, in history shows that when you have these kind of stocks that have become such large parts of the index, there have been some financial accidents along the way in the past. It's a very good point, Bob. Um, so, David, uh, Rainscroft, we are active investors, but as Bob has described, um, we're not necessarily in a position to own all of the Magnificent Seven in their index weights. How, how does the balance fund look in terms of its uh, exposure to Mag7 stocks? Thanks, Sean. We are first and foremost thematic investors, and technology and innovation is one of the core themes that we have exposure to. So the Magnificent Seven are firmly on our radar. The multi-manager strategies gain equity exposure through equity funds rather than individual equities. So we are unable to target exposures to individual businesses. We also tend to favour active investment managers who have a strong valuation discipline, which has directed investment away from the Magnificent Seven. If we look through the equity fund holdings in our balance strategy, we presently have no exposure to Apple, Amazon or Meta. Our total exposure to the Magnificent Seven is less than 4% of our equity content, which represents about one-fifth of their market weight. The one fund we're invested in that is more than 20% invested in the Magnificent Seven is unsurprisingly the dedicated AI fund that we're invested in. Whilst the underweight to the Magnificent Seven has been uncomfortable this year, we think at this point in time it's the right stance as valuations appear stretched and a valuation discipline is an important part of our investment process. Um, it's, and it's fair to go on record and say we, we believe AI is the fourth industrial revolution and it will probably be the most important theme for investors uh, over the next decade. But rather than significantly in increasing exposure to those shares that are the most immediate and obvious beneficiaries of AI-related investment, we're trying a bit harder. We're doing a lot of work. We're trying to identify other significant beneficiaries whose share prices have not moved yet. Rather than buying the picks and shovels of AI, we are casting the net further afield and looking for businesses that are using AI to transform their profitability and productivity so we can participate in the upside of the AI story but stay true to our valuation discipline. We're actually working with a third party on this at the moment um, and we, with their help we've been looking through all the underlying stocks that we own and we think about one third of the businesses we're presently invested in will be significant beneficiaries of AI, and we hope this should bode well for future investment returns for our clients. 
We've kind of been here before in terms of small groups of stocks that have that have dominated market performance. Neither of us have been around long enough to remember the Nifty 50, or at least have uh, worked when the Nifty 50 were a thing in the 70s. But certainly uh, in our careers, we saw the tech bubble in the late 90s that spectacularly burst in, uh, in, in the early 2000s. Are we looking at a similar scenario here in terms of a, a massive flame out at, at the top of a, a, a bubble market? It's true. There are so many of these boom bust stories that we, we've experienced and you and I have more grey hairs than most. So we've been through a few of them. There is a lot priced into the valuation of the Magnificent Seven. So I think there is scope for meaningful underperformance of them relative to broad equity markets. Um, and possibly also underperformance for a prolonged period of time. Uh, But I don't think we're going to see a collapse in valuations like we saw after the Y2K um, technology uh, correction in stocks. The Magnificent Seven are mostly high quality. They're proven businesses. They've got strong balance sheets, and they've got cash flows that other firms would willingly die for. Uh, the valuations of the businesses and the hype around them, it's not as extreme as that which prevailed during the tech boom. You know, I remember stories about rubber band companies putting .com after their name and, and seeing their valuations rise by hundreds of millions. We're not in that insane, speculative, frothy environment. But valuations are definitely creeping into territory. that prompt any investor with a valuation discipline to ask questions and it requires management to perfectly execute business plans if they are to justify existing valuations. Let's look at the um, poster child of AI, NVIDIA. It's undeniably a great business. It's got the product that everybody wants. It's at the epicenter of the AI boom. They've got best of breed product and you know, the bottom line is for so many businesses to achieve their AI goals, that's what they have to buy. But take a step back. Over the course of the year, the share price has risen from $145 to $500, then retraced a little bit. Um, and that's all been to sales forecasts more than doubling and profitability increasing more than fourfold. Now, that is stunning business performance. But this leaves the P a ratio of, of the shares trading around 60. So not only has the market priced in what has already happened, it's also expecting substantial further growth in sales and profitability for many years to come. And NVIDIA, it's going to have to make sure that its product remains the number one undisputed choice for, for all the businesses who use their product. It's going to have to exponentially um, see rising demand and management are going to have to perfectly execute on their business plan to justify that. But if that's not enough, if we then look at what the street are actually thinking the the shares are going to do in the future, they don't think they're going to stop at $500 a share. The average analyst forecast 12 months forward is for the shares to have risen through $650. And if you look at the more optimistic analysts, they're forecasting a share price of $1,100 in 12 months' time. Now, the market valuation could be right. The truth is no one knows. 
Personally, if I take a step backwards and think hard about what's needed to support the share price at this level, let alone propel it higher over the next 12 months, I'm comfortable being significantly underweight these shares. David, thank you for that. Um, let's move on to fixed income uh, markets, Bob. A big part of, uh, of of what we do, and certainly for your fund, a cornerstone asset. 2023, after the previous year's horror show in bond markets, was supposed to be the year of the great bond rebound. We haven't seen a great deal of that uh, until very recently. Tell us what's gone on in the markets and, and perhaps why that rebound that was expected hasn't really materialised. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, bond investors uh, have had a difficult couple of years, really. If you think back where we've been over the last five or six years or so, we've had to sort of tough it out over uh, over, over a decade, really, of very low interest rates and low bond yields as a result. Um, and we've been rewarded for that patience with a, a bit of a sting in the tail in, in terms of 2022. And that's a year which is competing for the dubious prize of worst bond market ever. And while I think there's been a lot of there's been a lot of commentary on on how difficult 2022 was for for lots of different asset classes, I think it is worth just trying to put a number on this for, for just to show you sort of how difficult it was in certain parts of the bond market because it is quite shocking, really. If you were unlucky enough to have bought the 20 year Treasury, and um, which the US issued back in I think it was May of uh, during the pandemic in 2020, and you were still sat on it three years later, you would be looking today at not far of a 40% capital loss on that bond. Um, And that's, you know, that's quite a shocking number. That's, you know, equity market crash. That's, you know, Y2K bubble type losses. Um, But we've seen that on government bonds over the last couple of years. And now, thankfully, most professional managers have steered clients away from the worst of those losses. But actually, it's been this, it just gives you a, a feel for quite how difficult some parts of the bond market have been. And that's really fed across into portfolios, especially portfolios that have got heavier bond elements, traditionally income, cautious, or some degree balanced portfolios. Now, this year, as you said, Sean, was supposed to be a banner year for bonds. And we came in with, with, you know, the best conditions you could ask for, the cheapest valuations we've seen in a decade and really strong positive market momentum as we rallied off the lows from sort of October 2022. And so what went wrong? If I had to give you five words, it would be Credit Suisse and Jerome Powell. Um, but if you if you unpack that a little bit, and um, effectively we you know we came into the year with this big rally. January was a super strong month for markets, and February we had the uh, mini banking crisis. So we saw the kind of stress from rising interest rates turn up first in smaller U.S. banks and um, some sort of less well known names like Silicon Valley Bank, and um, but ultimately culminating in the failure of Credit Suisse. Now, thankfully, that didn't evolve into a full-blown banking crisis. And I think that speaks to the much stronger position banks' balance sheets are in now than they were, say, 15 years ago. But it was certainly enough to take the wind out of the market sales and, and, and to sort of snuff out that rally we'd seen in January. So we had a retracement over sort of February and March of that year. And then what we've gone into in sort of the for the majority of 2023 was this kind of sort of bruising cycle where markets find their feet, stage a bit of recovery, and income central bankers are the big bucket of cold water to really sort of throw it on markets and just try and sort of snuff those rallies out. And that's been frustrating and and, and somewhat kind of painful for us as investors. Um, And I sort of dubbed it the washing machine. We've gone round and round and round all year, but don't seem to have made any progress. Um, But this behaviour makes complete sense if you're a central banker. 
you know, their job is to get inflation down. Inflation has been very high. It caused a lot of disruption for the economy. Um, and so we all we know in the long run, we all need inflation to come down. That is good for us in the long term. But a bit like a, a doctor prescribing a really bitter medication, um, while we know it's in our interest long term, it's been it's been pretty unpleasant in the short term. And the reason central bankers have been so keen to keep bonds from rallying this year is because one of the ways that they can apply the brakes to economy and so try and keep inflation under control um, is to drive up long-term borrowing costs. And that in roughly translates to driving up long-term bond yields. So every time you see a bond market rally, that drives down borrowing costs, that effectively takes the brake off the economy, and that gets central bankers nervous that this could lead to a reacceleration in firstly the economy, but secondly in inflation. And of course, that's the last thing we want is to have to go back into another hike cycle. So, you know, it's completely logical from their perspective, but it's been really frustrating this year for bond investors as we've seen a lot of false storms over the course of the year. So a frustrating year for you um, and in your asset class. Um, but uh, what about the outlook for, for the coming year? Things are looking up? You know, while it has been absolutely a frustrating year for, for bond investors, I'd say that the good news is that when you think about sort of the valuations we have today and how bonds work, we're pretty confident that this the sort of these attractive valuations turning into attractive returns, that's more of a when than an if. And, you know, in the short term, markets can do basically whatever they like. They're they're heavily driven by sentiment and and short term forecasts. But actually, as you look out towards the medium and the long term, fundamentals in all markets tend to assert themselves. And that's particularly true for bond markets because bond investors have a superhero on their side, the superhero of maths. If you buy a um, a corporate bond portfolio, and um, you know your return in the short term is affected by all kinds of things, principally expectations for interest rates and for um, uh, for, for defaults and all these sorts of things. But actually, as you start to sort of hold those bonds for sort of a longer period of time, say a couple of years, three, four years, there's one factor which really comes to kind of dominate your returns, and that basically is your purchase price. It's, it's the yield you bought that bond on to start with. Now, you can do all kinds of sort of fancy statistics to sort of evidence this relationship, um, but if you sort of take a simplified example and, and just look at a single bond, imagine you buy a typical like a seven-year bond with a 5% coupon. If you hold that bond for a week, your return is going to be dictated entirely by the vagaries of markets, by the changes in sentiment, by changes in short-term forecasts. But actually, you start to hold that bond for three years, four years, five years, six years, even seven years, all the way to maturity, then actually what you can see is that the, the your income return, your yield that you purchase that bond on, is like a sort of gravitational anchor. It draws your returns towards that point. Because over the longer time frame, really, the income is all that matters. And so for us, you know, if you think about where bond markets are and have been, if you roll back three years ago to the pandemic, if you bought a typical portfolio of sterling investment-grade corporate bonds, you were looking at a yield of less than 2%, so a really, really skinny income uh, buffer. Today, that same portfolio is yielding more than 7%. And so that for us is when you look out over the next couple of years, well, 2023 has undeniably been a frustrating one. For those investors who have the time and the patience sort of to wait out that short-term noise, we're pretty confident the next few years should be really rewarding ones because of those attractive starting yields today. So perhaps not a spectacular rally that uh, was was talked about 12 months ago, but uh, maybe just a slow grind upwards based on clipping your coupons and perhaps uh, a little bit of uh, a joy on top of that from, from a change in interest rate direction. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it could go a couple of ways, but the beauty is now you have a really strong income. And and that is, it gives you a wonderful buffer. You know, if interest rates come down, then maybe we get a nice capital rally. If they stay where they are, as you say, we'll just clip that nice attractive coupon and still attract attractive returns. But actually, even if something goes against us and you do see rates move up a little bit higher, you've now got a really healthy income buffer to help buffer you against future volatility. So for bonds, it's a, it's a lovely place to be at the moment. Wonderful. So let's get back to equity markets and, uh, and over to you, Shannon. Um, tell us uh, how our themes have performed this year. As David mentioned, we're global and thematic investors, and many of our listeners will be familiar with this approach. We believe identifying themes that are shaping the world around us is a great way to position portfolios. One of the things we really love about themes is that they're very clear and visible around us. A great example of a visible theme in motion is AI this year, and as David covered, tech has really led the way. We have benefited from owning some technology this year, but we also own this alongside other thematic investments, such as healthcare and emerging market consumption. And while the technology sector, mainly led by seven stocks, has done really well, it's been a more difficult year for some parts of emerging markets. China, for instance, has really struggled. And within healthcare, some subsectors have also had challenges. Within life sciences, equipment and tools, these businesses have faced destocking and inventory issues. We also have exposure to the environmental solutions theme across the Ravenscroft fund range, which has been really volatile this year. The divergence in theme performance over the past few years shows why we think diversification is so important. We do look through work on all the underlying portfolios to make sure we aren't over-concentrated to one area or another. Having multiple themes is really of no benefit if they're all the same under the surface. We recognise that opportunities span across multiple sectors and businesses, which gives us a chance to diversify our investments and reduce risk overall. We also think that the past year has shown how you access themes is so important. The ETF versus active manager fund debate has kind of raged on. This year, the clean energy ETF fell much harder than many actively managed clean energy funds. And we think this shows the real value of active management. We spend a lot of time monitoring the impact of ETF flows on areas and make sure we're not accidentally having any risk um, in being over-concentrated in ETF darling stocks. Another great thing about structural themes is that timing is much less important. Environmental Solutions has really struggled this year, but as we know, this is a long-term structural theme that could play out over decades. Our move to coal and our move to oil and gas took decades to happen. We know our clean energy future is inevitable, but it will take a lot of time to get there and trillions of dollars of investments are needed. We're really just at the start of our environmental solutions and clean energy journey. Themes take time to materialise and deliver results. So our approach is to be long-term holders and to have low turnover in our portfolios. Shannon, you've mentioned uh, the clean energy space as being a problem area for a lot of investors. Tell us what's happened there. We invest in the environmental solutions theme across the Ravenscroft fund range. And our Global Solutions Fund, which is our 100% equity thematic fund, focuses on businesses that are finding solutions to some of the world's greatest challenges. And it'll come to no shock to anyone that one of these key challenges is our move to a clean energy future. So environmental solutions and energy transition make up a significant part of this portfolio. So what did happen to the environmental solutions and energy transition space this year? Well, it's a real combination of a number of factors. Firstly, higher interest rates and a more volatile inflationary environment has impacted the businesses in these funds. This, combined with already digesting supply chain issues, has really caused stress for these companies. In terms of sector exposure, technology has been the top performer this year, and Global Solutions is underweight this space. 
In addition to that, we don't have any Magnificent Seven names, so no communication services in there. And we also have lots of utilities, which have really struggled this year. There were some stock-specific issues over the summer, which also impacted share prices. Orsted and Siemens Gamesa announced um, impairment charges. And Nextera also had some negative forward guidance. This then caused contagion in the sector, across the offshore wind and electrical grid supply chain. There was also a bit of an anti-ESG feel to investor sentiment this year as ESG and clean energy ETF outflows continued. This was combined with a pullback in government support. There were many planned tax incentives in the US that didn't go through. And in the UK, we saw um, many kind of climate regulations also being uh, rolled back, um, which we hope is temporary and kind of a bit of political manoeuvring there from Rishi. So going into next year, what's our outlook for these stocks? Well, Unless Santa brings me my crystal ball, um, I won't actually be able to predict what's going to happen over the next 12 months. So I think we'll stick to our knitting. We'll focus on selecting the best fund managers in each specialist uh, theme and space. And we'll continue to focus on long-term structural trends in diversified portfolios. So 2023 has been a really challenging year for environmental solutions. There's been a number of negative um, events that have impacted performance. Looking forward, uh, we are excited to see the impact of the US Inflation Reduction Act come through. We should see some um, of those orders and the tax incentives come through in 2024. This would mean big benefits for many of our global solutions themes and funds. And across the broader fund range, um, the Environmental Solutions Fund should also benefit. Overall, the long-term outlook for these funds and themes is still exciting and valuations are looking broadly attractive. There are some real pockets of value which our fund managers can take advantage of. There could be more short-term volatility to come, but we are confident that we've selected the best funds in the right themes that should perform well over the long term. So to sum up, Bob, you're optimistic for the prospects for bond markets, yeah? Yeah, totally. I think, you know, for investors with with three to five years uh, to invest in for looking for sort of fairly sort of known returns and the sort of purchase deals you can get on ones today, as we said, more than 7% on on a, on a sort of straightforward bond portfolio, really attractive and, and should play out over the next couple of years. And for you, David, um, the Magnificent Seven, a big theme in markets for this year, but uh, going forward, not the only theme? Absolutely, Sean. Fantastic theme incredibly exciting um, but if you you've got to look at the broad investment opportunity that's there and you've got to take on board that we are whilst we're thematic investors we're also active investors with a strong valuation discipline so when one of the themes goes on a tear such as technology and innovation has this year um, we might miss some of the froth Um, But it'll also mean that if there is a correction in that area that follows, we'll also miss some of the pain. Back to Shannon's point on the whole, uh, the advantages of diversification. Absolutely. Rule 101. Looking forward to 2024, we remain um, diversified in our themes and we keep our eyes peeled for any exciting opportunities, whether it be in technology, healthcare, emerging markets or environmental solutions. And we'll continue to stick to our knitting and to focus on knowing what we own and why we own it and picking the best fund managers accessing the right long-term investment themes.